Welcome to Chasing Compliance, the global regulatory podcast, where we discuss all aspects, medical device, pharmaceutical, regulatory, and clinical strategy from bench to bedside. In this episode, we're going to be discussing tips and tricks for writing performance evaluation reports, or PERs, which are the submissions required by the European Union for the marketing and sale of certain in vitro diagnostic devices, or IVDs. First and foremost thing that I can recommend for those of you who are getting ready to write a PER is to understand the scope of your document. And, you know, don't be afraid to have fun with it. Uh, These are very interesting documents and a nice challenge. Our guest today, Bethany Hosford, is a veteran regulatory writer and strategist specializing in EU medical device and IVD submissions. Today, Bethany provides tips and suggestions for those looking to write exceptional performance evaluation reports or PERs in their associated documents. Topics include how to prepare for writing a PER, what items to collect prior to starting the writing process, general tips for the writing process, how to package analytical and clinical data, what to do if you get stuck, how to stay organized, and what to do if your data portfolio is insufficient in some way. A bit more about Bethany. Bethany started her scientific and writing career as part of a team researching the neuronal circuits underlying adult-onset temporal lobe epilepsy, where in addition to doing research, she authored several publications. She transitioned into regulatory writing almost five years ago, where she has focused almost entirely on EU medical device submissions. Bethany holds a BA in biology from Transylvania University and a PhD in neuroscience from the University of Cincinnati, and she's a senior manager on the medical device team at Global. Hey, Bethany, thank you so much for coming on Chasing Compliance today. Thank you, Jamie. I'm happy to be here. I am really excited to talk to you about PERs and get into it. You are a veteran PER writer. You've also been writing CERs for quite a long time. So you have insight from both sides of the coin of the the MDR coin, as it were. So I'm, I'm excited to talk to you, even though our discussion will primarily focus on PERs. Before we jump in, can you give us a little history and a little bit of background on what the PER is? Absolutely. So the performance evaluation report or PER is a new document that is a part of the technical documentation that is required under IVDR for in vitro diagnostics to gain CE mark approval to be marketed and used within the European Union. This document is a new regulation. Uh, It was not a part of the technical documentation prior to 2017. However, now with the new IVDR regulation, it is required for all classifications of devices and the higher risk class devices also require notified body involvement to be reviewing the technical documentation, including the PER. So if I were to have an IVD or an in vitro diagnostic device, what would be my first steps for preparing to submit a technical file that includes a PER? So the first step whenever I'm preparing to write a PER is to understand the classification of the device so I know what exactly needs to go into the PER to accomplish conformity for this device. After that, you wanna have a really good understanding of the risk profile and know a few other details such as is it a companion diagnostic? Is it a point of care or near patient diagnostic? Is it a self-testing device? Is it a software or an algorithm that is being used and claimed as a device? Um, Thereafter, I would begin to write the PEP or performance evaluation plan. And this plan is another document. It's part of 
the performance evaluation package, and it's going to be used to guide creation of the PER to ensure that the device is safe and effective um, and is also you know, diagnostically appropriate for the given patient population. So say I have an in vitro diagnostic or an IVD that I want to get out into the market and I think I'm ready to go for CE mark approval. Where should I start the PER process? Yes. Yeah, so I would start by collecting, collecting as many source documents as that you have. This will be part of the technical documentation and specific pieces will also be included in the PER. So you're going to want to be looking for any design files or technical files. If you have a tech file or design dossier, for example, in addition, you're going to want to grab your, your bench top data. So any verification and validation reports, if you have clinical data, you will want to have access to that as, as well as you go about writing the performance evaluation report. Um, and then I would just starting to get a real good understanding for where you're going to be going with the report and what are you trying to accomplish? You know, what's the risk class, of the device, what claims are you going to be making? What is the intended purpose? Um, what GSPRs are applicable for this device? Having a good understanding of that on the front end is just going to make the back end a whole lot easier. So after collecting all of this information, the first step in the PER writing process is actually to create the PEP or performance evaluation plan. This is going to document where you're going to be getting your data sources, how you're going to go about appraising them, uh, what data is going to be collected, you know, what data will be used to complete your conclusions. And it's going to be it's your roadmap as you write the PER and having a really solid plan in place going into it will will make the entire process, you know, more seamless. Do you, what are your must haves for a, a really good performance evaluation plan or PEP? So you need to have a well-defined scope, as I mentioned earlier. Uh, in addition, know your data sources and have them clearly and strategically presented. Uh, so you're going to want to have, you know, different levels of evidence, whether it's, you know, Benchtop data, animal testing, um, maybe passive complaints data, followed by clinical data. Again, you know, if, if it's available to you. I can imagine for some in vitro diagnostics, collecting clinical data may be difficult. And, and correct me if I'm wrong, it's not always required, but it's always good to have. Do you have any tips for people out there searching for clinical data? I imagine there's a scenario where a diagnostic is used as a confirmatory test to identify a clinical population. And so it's mentioned in a study, but the study's got nothing to do with the device itself. And I fear that may happen a lot. Do you have any tips for anybody in that boat? Absolutely. And you bring up a really good challenge that IVDR is bringing to the industry, and that is finding clinical data sets to support these devices under the former regulation, the IVDD in vitro diagnostic directive, clinical data sets were not emphasized to the extent that they are being emphasized under IVDR. And as you mentioned, a lot of these devices, since they're only being used as diagnostics and not for patient treatment, they're often not being reported in the literature and often not the sole focus of a manufacturer sponsored study. To this end, my recommendation for manufacturers is to really become creative and this may mean developing a robust PMPF plan, so post-market post performance follow-up plan, to collect this data. And if you don't have access or funding for a large randomized controlled trial, you can always get a bit more creative and try to go after a physician survey or 
a patient survey uh, or anything to collect data in the future on your device. And by having a robust PMPF plan, you can show the notified bodies that even if finding clinical data for your device today is very challenging, in the future, you will have data to support the safety and performance of the device in a clinical population. I like that. I like get creative. That's a great tip. After identifying the data sets, my, the next step in my process is to appraise each of the data sets. And this is one of the new requirements that's a part of IVDR is to appraise the data sets for appropriateness and suitability, as well as for level of evidence if you're looking at a clinical population to see how strong the evidence is. Following data appraisal, I will begin analyz analyzing the data, extracting the data, reviewing the data, understanding the data, summarizing the data, and getting it prepared to put into the performance evaluation report. So considering all of the, both the PER and the ancillary documents, how important is it to consider your audience when you're when you're writing these? It seems like a very cliche question to ask. And yeah, it's really important to consider your audience. Beyond that, why is it important to consider your audience? And wh what do you do to consider who's reading this report and how do you craft it for them? Interesting question. Um, as a medical writer, you often write these reports. They're sent off to the notified body and you know you, you may or may not hear anything back depending on who is coordinating the notified body response. However, you know the audience that you're working with is you have one, the regulation, which is the law that you have to follow and keep the document in, in alignment with whatever interpretation you're making of IVDR and that you can justify. Otherwise, your audience is going to be the notified body and these are experts in the field. They do have a background about the device. Um, and it's also just people that are a part of the European Union population that are looking to have good devices put on the market and want to have a say in that. So, you know, understanding the audience, it's important, although sometimes it can feel a bit vague at times. It's sort of like a black box sits out there. So, so my first recommendation would just be to really understand the regulations uh, and, and come up with your interpretation based on your understanding of, of the regulations and put that best foot forward for the notified body. Okay, that makes sense. Take a look at the data holistically and then pull it all together when you go to write the report, as opposed to generating piecemeal clinical data for individuals or data in general for individual sections. You want to look at it holistically and then if, if possible, then write the, the performance evaluation report. Is that, is that fair? For me, that works really well. Uh, it helps me draw conclusions at the end of the process if I have a better understanding of the entire data sets rather than looking at it each individually. However, what you are describing, looking at each thing piecemeal and going you know, straight from preclinical, moving over and doing your conclusions of preclinical before going over to your literature, wrapping that all up, going over to your other sources of data, whether it's manufactured, sponsored studies or complaints data, concluding that portion of the data set. Doing it that way also works uh, works as well. However, just at the end of the performance evaluation report, you will need to take the time to look at it all from the bigger picture to just ensure that the general safety and performance requirements are being met, um, that the risks outweigh the benefits, that the claims are being met or the claims are justified and looking at from the big picture uh, in addition to this, the smaller pieces. I'd like to put aside the PER for a second and we'll talk about it We'll certainly bring it back into the conversation in a little bit, but 
I wanted to talk a little bit about the items associated with the performance evaluation report and specifically the analytical performance report or APR, the scientific validity report or SVR, or the clinical performance report, CPR. What is the purpose of these ancillary documents? How do they fit into the big picture? And what can you tell us about writing these? And how do they fit kind of in your workflow and the whole in the big picture? Absolutely. That's a really great question, Jamie. So the analytical performance report scientific validity report and clinical performance reports are three distinct reports that are a part of the performance evaluation report. The analytical performance report is a summary of the analytical performance data. This could be analytical sensitivity or specificity, precision or accuracy, any limits of detection or quantitation, linearity, cutoff, um, or any other analytical performance aspects that are applicable to the specific device. Typically, analytical performance data will be derived from preclinical benchtop studies, so your verification and validation reporting. These reportings will generally have customer requirements that need to be met, uh, and at the end of the analytical performance test, you will know whether the test passed or failed. Uh, the, summer, the summary of this will be included in the PER and then later presented in the analytical performance report. For the scientific validity report, you're going to want to show how the analyte or marker relates to the disease or condition that is being evaluated. So whenever I'm approaching the scientific validity report, I always go straight back to the state-of-the-art section. This, I would say 90% of the time, if not more than that, is where you're going to find the data demonstrating that the analyte or, mark or marker is related to the disease. So say you're doing a performance evaluation report for a companion diagnostic or a CDX. These are interesting because they are coupled often with a drug or therapeutic, and they're needed to roughly determine if the drug is right for the person um, or what drug is right for the person for that matter. In this case, I feel like you can't simply just say, hey, I've got a CDX that can identify BRCA with this sensitivity and this specificity, genotype of interest can identify it. You've also got to go to the next level. Uh, is that the case? And what do you have to say about how to associate the output of in vitro diagnostics with the therapeutic usage? Absolutely. So in these situations, you will need to be able to demonstrate that the marker that is being evaluated uh, using this device is indeed associated with the disease condition. So in the example you were using the, you know, BRCA, you'll need to show that that is truly associated with breast cancer. So to complete the scientific validity report, I always go back to the state of the art. At least 90 or 95% of the time, you will be finding information to demonstrate scientific validity from the state of the art and from the literature. But a good scientific validity report relies on more than just outlining the disease, correct? It's, it's really connecting the diagnostic to the therapeutic area in a meaningful way generally? In some instances, the scientific validity of the device may be pretty straightforward and won't take a whole lot to demonstrate. 
For example, let's say you're looking at a device that evaluates blood coagulation timing. Uh, in this case, you're likely associating time to coagulate being your mark with the coagulation state of the patient or possibly heparinization state of the patient. This is pretty self-explanatory and pretty obvious. I think most people assume uh, blood that clots quickly is not in a highly heparinized state, wherever if it takes a long time to clot, then the patient is highly anticoagulated, um, indicative likely of a, a high state of heparinization. Um, you can go into the scientific literature, look at your state of the art, but the data is gonna be readily available very quickly. In other situations, demonstrating scientific validity can be challenging. You have a new novel marker for cancer, and this is something that uh, only was recently identified in the past year uh, in an animal model. So for this, you will need to look back at those original benchtop testing that is demonstrating that this particular genetic variation is associated with development of a tumor in this example. And a lot of it could be going back to just basic research publications um, and looking at how, you know, knocking out specific genes is contributing to the disease and being able to demonstrate that to the notified body such that if you were to be able to look at a patient, look at a specific marker and say there is a mutation here, you know that that mutation is going to be associated with the tumor that you're evaluating. Okay. So in that context, you have to, as the regulatory writer, you have to be pretty strategic with the way that you put things together, because while there's not a lot of clinical data on this new genetic test, reports up to this point have shown, let's say in this hypothetical, that th there could be a really profound link between your diagnostic and the staging of cancer, and it may be a great diagnostic. So let's you want to get it out on the market and the notified body wants to get it out on the market. Again, not a lot of clinical evidence, not a lot backing it up. It is, would be a considered a high risk device because it's going to inform clinical decisions. What is your strategy in the, in this, in this lower volume of, of data scenario? And actually really what I want to ask is when do you know enough is enough and how do you make a little enough? That's an excellent question, Jamie. So Unfortunately, we don't know the answer to that. And the best approach you can take is to really work with your notified body and make a case, justify that case as best you can, see what their response is, make adjustments if it's necessary. Um, but that question, I mean, that's the that's the million dollar question everyone wants to know the answer to is when is enough enough is enough. Um, but what's funny is you may not even need clinical data if you have very robust analytical performance data and you're demonstrating that you have um, a very robust PMPF plan and you are intending to, to gain clinical data thereafter. That, that might be sufficient if you can work with your notified body. That might not be. You know, that's not always the case. They could come back and they say, there's no way we're not going to put this on the market until, until you can demonstrate it in a human population but you won't know until you try. So, you know, my recommendation is give it the best you have, everything you have, do a deep dive, a very deep dive, and be able to show that you have exhausted all methods of, of collecting data and put forth your best foot and work with the notified body after, after the initial submission. 
All right. So to summarize kind of what you just said, Bethany, for the situation where you don't have you're not steeped in clinical data, like the the example with the, the blood coagulation, where it was a diagnostic that's been around for a while, uh, it's used clinically in lots of scenarios. There's lots of clinical data. And in the, the case of a novel device, you really want to make sure that you're putting your best foot forward. You're summarizing what you have and clearly and accurately summarizing the impact of what you have, making it, making sure that you are capturing the true strength of any data that you do have, acknowledging where you don't have data and your shortfalls and really pointing the reviewer towards what are the next steps? What are you going to do next? What is your post-market? What, what data collection activities do you have going on right now? What's going to happen in the future? And um, not promises of having additional data the next time, but indicate that you are fully aware of the gaps and you're addressing them. They're not easy to write. They're definitely different than clinical evaluation reports or other medical device submissions beyond, beyond the differences between the two. Starting off broadly, what are your high level recommendations for those about to or currently writing PERs? If you were to be able to go back in a time machine before you wrote your first PER and say, Bethany, do these two things, what would those two things be? The first and foremost thing that I can recommend for those of you who are getting ready to write a PER is to understand the scope of your document and ensure that you have an MDR compliant intended purpose statement so that whenever you do start to evaluate the state of the art and the data in regards to the intended purpose, that that is well defined. Um, ensure that you know your claims and that you know that you have analytical or clinical data to support these claims. I think that that is Major pitfall number one is getting, you know, 75% of the way through one of these PER documents and realizing that that the scope wasn't what you expected it to be. Um, maybe the intended purpose is being expanded or is being limited, uh, and that's going to have a downstream effect on your literature searches, on how you are analyzing data and what specific, what specific indications are considered off-use and off-label. Uh, so yes, that's, that is my absolute number one recommendation. What have you seen as the most common hiccup or failure in this area? Is there, what you're basically saying is know what you've got before you start putting pen to paper and understand the mission. Have you seen, or how can you imagine that it's easy to go astray here? Is there a piece that's over often overlooked, a piece of data, something that you should be considering Anything outside of, of what you just mentioned? Oh, good question. So I would ensure that you have, you know, your appropriate data sources. Make sure that your device also has, you know, any reference material or controls that are needed to demonstrate metrologic traceability. You know, if there's the device needs to be sterile, ensure that you have all appropriate tests for sterility completed. Um, if you are looking at an assay and it has a software algorithm that is associated with it, be sure that you have an understanding that the software may be considered a device in and of itself and will need to be evaluated uh, in addition to the assay and, and more tangible aspects of the device. That's interesting. That's something that I is overlooked more often than not is considering the sterility and making sure that you have all of your 
ducks in a row with respect to sterility and the software question, getting back to the software, it, it can be hard to determine the role of the software within the entire milieu or context of the rest of the device. You're totally right. If it's got an algorithm and it does processing, it may well be its own device. So it's really important to understand that the worst thing you can do is, is put together a beautiful PER, submit it, and then you get back from the notified body that, oh, by the way, you have this other entire device and you didn't really say anything about it. Yeah. So software is interesting. It's, it can easily be overlooked. You know, often it is the point, it's the point of interpretation for these devices. So even though it can be easily overlooked, it might be the most critical component. You heard it here first. Think about your software. It's important. It's not just for displaying results. So piggybacking off of that and basically our entire discussion up to this point, often, if not always, there's something to be desired with your data portfolio. In many cases, gaps of some kind. Obviously, these gaps are not fatal, but dealing with them is important. Uh, and your strategy for dealing with them is really important. Do you have any tips or advice for people with clear or even subtle data gaps and how to how to address them? I know that it's really a case by case in a specific scenario, but broadly, <clears throat> like how, how would you address performance level data or validation level data or safety level data with gaps, gaps in state of the art and understanding the therapeutic space, that type of thing? How do, how do you deal with gaps? Yeah, great question. So, I mean, I guess there's two obvious answers. There's the gloss over it uh, route and there's the acknowledge it route. Um, my personal preference is just to acknowledge it. Don't don't try to hide behind your gaps. Uh, they do exist. Uh, it might be a new technology and you just haven't had a chance to have it evaluated in all applicable patient pop populations. Uh, it could be a legacy device and it hasn't had any studies completed on it any time in recent history. And, and I would just acknowledge that. Uh, and then you'll either need to defend it, either need to say the the class of the, the risk class of the device is so low that, you know, the fact that we don't have clinical data in this patient population or whatever the scenario may be, that that, that is still acceptable. Or if it's a legacy device, you can say, you know, the 30 years history that we have using this device proves that it's safe and effective. Uh, and we do have this gap, but we're justifying that it's acceptable still. Uh, and that might that might work, it might not work. There's never any guarantee. Again, it goes back to how you need to work with your notified body to see exactly what they they want to see. So yeah, I, I would go ahead, note it. And best case scenario, maybe you do have a plan to address it. And that's a big part of PMPF is evaluating formerly unknown, unforeseen risks and these gaps such that we're talking about. So you can acknowledge that, you know, this is a gap, but we are intending on evaluating it. And in subsequent revisions of the PER and uh, related reports, you know, we're going to begin to address this question. And, you know, that's that's showing that you're taking the gap seriously and, and you're going to put your best effort to gain data for that, that question that remains. What about the scenario where you don't fully understand the data that you have coming in or don't know how to put it in the correct context? How do you how do you deal with that? And, and, and this is a hypothetical. Because how, what would you tell them to do? So the benefits of writing these, you know, often, I mean, it, it can be a one man show sometimes. Um, I never 
hope to be in that position and I wouldn't want anyone listening to be in that position either. Um, but generally you're working with a larger team and you can lean on the experts. So, you know, if it's a question about how the device works, you know, there might be a product specialist that can help me understand the the fundamentals the, of the principles of operations of the device. Or maybe I don't fully understand, you know, the clinical aspect to it. You know, how is this diagnosis related to patient condition? And hopefully you'll have someone from medical affairs who can help you answer that question. And you really have to lean on them for guidance, you know, as a medical writer. I'm not a doctor, you know, I don't have a background in all sorts of different types of diagnostics, but I do know the experts that can help me out with it and the little bit of guidance usually together, we can figure out the best path forward. I'm a, I'm a huge fan of that answer because it underscores the importance of working together with your team. There is somebody who understands the the validation testing better than you. There are people that understand the clinical use better than you. And I think sometimes as regulatory writers, we avoid reaching out to these people. And sometimes collaborating with them can be challenging because they don't really understand why you have to do this and what you're doing as a regulatory professional. But at the end of the day, I, I love that because you really probably want to reach out to the people that understand things and get a clearer picture. And that's critically important because you have to understand what you're trying to do well to be able to craft successful strategy. Absolutely. Yep. Correct. I'm always reaching out to the experts to help get through these documents. Yeah. I mean, this is this can these can be incredibly complicated. Uh, you know, some of these like next gen sequencing platforms and some of the software out there. I mean, it's it's wild with complexity. And if I feel like this is true because of, of my experience and what I've written, if you don't fundamentally understand what's going on, it will come through in the PER that you don't understand and you haven't represented the state of the art correctly or the, the data correctly. So it, it is really, really important that you you understand along with that. So just to kind of recap what we, we've just talked about, when you're starting your performance evaluation report, it's really important that you to know what you have, know what kind of data that you have, that the data is appropriate and from an appropriate source, that you have information on your controls, you have information on all relevant standards associated with the device or anything that you're going to need to demonstrate compliance with an example of which is sterility. And it's important to consider the regulatory implications of all of the pieces of the device. This goes back to the software. If you identify gaps, call them out and call out the remedy. And if you don't quite understand what you have as far as inputs, reach out to people that wrote the inputs or that under or that were in the, the background helping put together whatever input it is or understands where they, they came from. They're all going to be eager to help you. And it, it really does benefit everyone in the long run. Even if you take half an hour of their day, it will end up saving everybody a lot of time in the review cycle if you button up any issues and don't make assumptions before moving forward. Speaking of that, there are a lot of pieces that go into PERs, so switching gears quite a bit here. Information that can come from a lot of different sources, like inputs, like sterility testing, could be broken out into 13 different reports. How do you keep your data inputs organized? How do you organize yourself through the PER writing process? Because it takes a long time to write these, and you have to go through a lot of information uh, and and keep it all together. What, yeah, what's your strategy for staying organized? Ooh, good question. I'm sure everyone probably approaches this differently. I don't necessarily think there's 
a right answer. I'm a big fan of tables. Pretty much anytime I'm analyzing any sort of data set, I'll have a well-structured table to just organize my thoughts and organize the inputs uh, and also organize specific outputs that I'm interested in. You know, false negatives, false positives, likelihood of you know, correct diagnosis in a patient population, you know, or anything other that could be applicable to the specific device. Um, Yeah, tables help me a lot. I also think it helps the reader to have a nice, quick summary uh, without having to necessarily go through paragraphs and paragraphs and paragraphs of words. So, so yeah, that's one suggestion. Also, you know, just the general pace of writing to, you know, know how much time is remaining in the document Uh, and how much time you need to provide yourself for conclusions, uh, any summaries that need to be written. um, That's also critical to staying staying on pace. Yeah, and also going back to scope, um, knowing your scope from the get-go is going to lower the chance that you're going to have to go back and have a lot of rework or rewriting to do later in the process if the scope changes. Um, But similarly, in my experience, the scope always changes, at least to some degree. You hope it's minor and not major. And prepare for the unexpected. I mean, I almost think that especially if it's uh, a new device or if it's uh, the first PER ever being written for a device, just expect there to be a few bumps along the road. Include that in your timeline and learn to roll with the punches. I don't think I've ever worked on a project where the scope didn't change slightly at some point. Speaking of pacing, it is important to stay within a timeline. I can't agree more. You want to set milestones and you want to stick to them through the writing process and be mindful of how much time things are taking. Can you give us a general overview on how much time you should be spending in general sections or how long it takes you to write in general each of the major sections of a PER? So, you know, of course, there's a lot of different factors that can go into that answer and no PER is the same. Um, but just speaking generally, I would like, I would like to have at least two weeks to write the state of the art section, uh, which for me is the most challenging. Uh, once I, once I have that understanding, the rest of it is a lot more easily and is completed usually a lot more seamlessly at least two weeks you know, those of you who write CERs and PERs have probably written one in less if timelines force you to, but those are never ideal situations. And for data extraction, you know, maybe a week for each source, assuming that you do have quite a bit of analytical performance data, quite a little bit of clinical performance data, quite a bit of literature uh, results, you know, maybe, maybe a week for each of those. Again, you know, you work with what you get. Sometimes we're all under the same pressure here to to complete this. Yeah, I think I think a week for each major data source is, is fair. Again, you know, I love what you said. You said you know, not every PR is the same. They're definitely none of them are ever the same. So that'll vary from from project to project. But those seem like pretty pretty safe guidelines all in all. When you're going to finalize a performance evaluation report. What's your strategy? Do you have a checklist that you like to follow? Is there an order in which you do things generally? What is your advice for those in the final stages of writing a PR? This is a stage that often is overlooked. 
Um, but you know, you don't want to don't want to run out of energy at the end. You definitely want to do a very comprehensive quality check of your own work. I usually just start at the beginning and work my way all the way to the end, read from top to bottom. Uh, during this read, I'm doing an English language check, spelling and grammar. Um, I'm also formatting the document as I go and I'm making sure that everything looks very nice, looks consistent. Uh, that's going to be the, you know, the first thing anyone, they're going to see it before they read it. And you want to be sure to start with a good impression. I personally don't follow a checklist, but I know that they are very, very helpful to many writers. And that is the method that many people use. And, and if that helps anyone stay organized, you know, I always highly recommend it. Yeah. And I also usually like to have another writer read it if I am able uh, within that project to have another writer read it, just to have another set of eyes. They can usually catch things that I don't catch. Just to kind of summarize what you just said, uh, as far as organization goes, for managing inputs and for managing data and analyzing data, use tables. Put information in those in those tables, use them as a, as a reference instead of just relying on your brain or scraps of paper or sticky notes on your monitor, right? Keep everything together. And if the table's good and relevant, Use the table in the report. Just make sure you explain it. Pay attention to pacing and milestones. Set them and stick to them. Remember your scope and strategy. Scope tree, scope creep and scope change happen. It's almost inevitable, but do your best to manage it because it can really impact the trajectory of, of a project and derail things. And be prepared for the unexpected by staying organized. You don't know sometimes when you're going to get inputs. It could be moments before it's supposed to be done could be out of nowhere. If you're not organized and ready for this, then this can really kind of wreck your, your whole process. As far as wrapping things up, you suggest that you read it top to bottom. And I love the fact that you said, have somebody else read it top to bottom. And that would, I would echo that recommendation for anyone at, at the bare minimum, let it sit before you do a final read through, let it sit overnight or something like that. So you come at it with fresh eyes. If you can have somebody else do it in addition to yourself, that's always fantastic. Make sure it looks good. This is something that you've em emphasized many times in the past, and I really want to echo that. And, and I believe it's very, very important. If your tables look off, if the document isn't consistent, if things aren't formatted consistently, it reduces the legitimacy of the document overall, in my opinion. And I've heard this from, from people from the notified body that clean, clear, concise, consistent documents are strongly preferred and things that look sloppy, people assume that the writing and the evidentiary analysis and all of the pieces behind the writing and the document itself are sloppy as well. So definitely keep it clean, make it look clean. And if you are a checklist type of person, use a checklist. Some people don't like them, but some people do. There are definitely checklists out there for IVDR components. So you make sure that you have, as it were, crossed all your T's and dotted all your I's. So anything else to add? Anything off the wall? Any, any lessons that you learned early on in your PER writing career that you would like to share so people aren't doomed to repeat the same mistake? <laughs> no, no more tips necessarily, but, you know, don't be afraid to have fun with it. Uh, these are very interesting documents and a nice challenge away from medical devices and being able to have a deeper dive into kind of the molecular mechanisms behind a lot of these diseases can be fun to study and rewarding, 
you know, to to document in these regulatory reports. So have fun with it. Yeah, these these reports can be pretty fun and creative. The, your strategy can be really your own in, in the way you write these documents. You can really go your own direction. Obviously, you have to stay within the context of the regulations and you don't want to ruffle too many feathers, but or you don't want to buck too much tradition because, you know, that whatever has worked in the past, definitely leverage that. But you don't be afraid to be creative and, and to, to look at things outside of the box and to take a different approach. Speaking of that, what are your thoughts on using templates? Oh, I love templates. Uh, if you have a solid template to work with, go for it. I, and, and oftentimes it's a requirement to follow your template if that is a part of your, your IVDR SOP. But having one that is well-organized and with meaningful instructions can make the process more seamless. Well, thank you so much, Bethany, for coming on today's show. We like to do something at the end of, of our, our shows for each new guest. And that is a segment we call Favorite Friday Nights. How do you like to celebrate a regulatory win or how do you unwind on a Friday after a long week of writing PERs? Oh, man, I usually end up with carry out and a good TV series that I can binge for hours and hours. What's your favorite at the moment or what was your last favorite? So my current show is going to be Jack Ryan. I just started it about a week ago. I'm very addicted. I can't wait to see what happens at the end of season one. That will be this Friday's activity. And then I'll be starting season two right after that. Thank you for listening to this episode of Chasing Compliance. If you have other questions about anything we discussed in today's show or any regulatory or clinical topic in general, please don't hesitate to reach out to us directly by emailing us at info at globalrwc.com or submitting a request for information through our website, www.globalrwc.com. There you can find more information on our approach to solving a wide variety of regulatory and clinical challenges. If you enjoyed the show, please subscribe, leave a review, or share this with your colleagues. You can leave us a review on Apple Podcasts or any other podcast app you're listening on.